0: Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And we're continuing our series through Advent, looking at various portraits of Jesus uh, and the Gospels. This morning will be in Matthew chapter 2. The passage is found for you on page 10 in your order of worship there. Or feel free to turn there in your own Bibles or in your smartphone apps. Um, if you want, you can use the Bible there in front of you in the chair. And this passage today is found on page 757. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. So as you're turning there, we're going to be in a very uh, familiar passage this morning. This is the story of the wise men, and we're going to walk through it this morning, focusing on five words, hope, fear, apathy, joy, and worship. And through these five words, hopefully, perhaps this familiar story will kind of surprise us maybe with a fresh encounter of God's grace so if you would, would you please turn with me now in Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 <clears throat> now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king behold wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying where is he who has been born king of the Jews for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him when Herod the king heard this When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank You, Lord, that You have chosen to reveal Yourself to us so we can know You exactly as You want to be known. And so, Father, we ask that You would once again be true to Your promise, that You would send Your Spirit to open the text up to us and us to it, that we might know You, know ourselves, and know Your gospel. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week in the passage right before this, we saw that that the Lord had revealed his plan for the coming of Jesus. He revealed that to Mary, but he left Joseph out of the loop at first. And so Joseph, even when he thought that Mary had sinned against him and broke his heart, we saw that Joseph was both a kind and a righteous man, reflecting the very character of God himself. And he takes Jesus as his own son. And now we're going to see God messing up a whole city with some unexpected visitors. We've kind got of a little twist here. So the first thing I want you to notice is we have the word hope here in the first couple verses. Matthew kind of just jumps right in. He doesn't really make a transition from the previous story. He doesn't give us any details about what this star thing is. He doesn't tell us who these people are. He just says wise men. Because unlike us, Matthew's not concerned with those things. Matthew, being the most Jewish of the four Gospels, writing to a Jewish audience, trying to get them to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of their hopes. He wants them to see from the very beginning, in fulfillment of hope, non-Jews, Gentiles, are coming to worship our king because he's their king too. That's what he cares about. He cares that these non-Jews are coming to seek, quote, the king of the Jews. They come in hope to worship him, and yet when they get to the capital city of the Jewish people, they have to ask around. There's no line. There's, there's no big banners anywhere. There's nothing showing that the king has come. It's a snooze fest rather than a celebration, and they can't find anybody. They're confused. So who are these guys? Because we don't understand who these people are when we just read straight through it. Well, they're called magi, where we get our word magic from. They're from the east modern-day Iran, Iraq, what used to be Babylon, what used to be Persia. They were a well-known caste, a guild we could say, maybe even a tribe of scholars and advisors who made up a lot of the advisors to the kings in the area. One scholar calls them pre-scientific scientists of antiquity. They were known for their knowledge. They were known for their, for their intelligence. They were known for their wisdom. There are many references in ancient literature to Magi visiting emperors. A procession of Magi came to see Nero, the infamous Nero in AD 66. The Jewish historian of antiquity, Josephus, tells us that Magi visited this same Herod in this text in 10 BC to visit him. Maybe that's why in verse 3 he's all like, wait, these guys are back. And here's something that we often miss. Matthew's Jewish readers had seen these guys before. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends are actually selected and put into the cast of the Magi during the Babylonian captivity. In fact, Daniel chapter 2 verse 48 tells us that Daniel himself was eventually appointed the chief of the Magi. And that is actually why these magi are coming now to see Jesus. From Daniel, what was incorporated into their curriculum, let's call it, was the Old Testament. When Daniel became their chief, he brought that into their knowledge. It became one of the things that they studied. And so being exposed to the Old Testament, when they see this star, whatever it is, they're able to understand what it means. I love that God used Daniel like that. Because if you know the story of Daniel it became a great career for him it ended well but it started out as a terrible job with a horrible boss I don't know how many of you have had your bosses throw you to a literal lion's den maybe metaphorically they did it actually happened to Daniel but yet look how God used him and used his work oh dear Christians hear that your weekday work matters It is fodder that God uses for his plans. You have no idea what God intends to do for your work. From Daniel's perspective, he probably felt himself not very successful for God because even though he rose way up high in Babylonian political power, he was never able to get his people relief. He was never able to get them released from this Babylonian captivity. He probably considered himself a failure. God has given me all this power and I can't use it for any good. The Hebrew people only left Babylon when a superior military defeated Babylon and Babylon ceased to be. So from Daniel's perspective, he may not have done much. But what he will never know or could never know is that he is directly responsible for the first official international recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. Daniel's work is why these magi want to come see the newborn king. Oh, dear Christians, don't ever think your work doesn't matter. God uses it for his purposes way beyond your imagination. So in hope, these guys traveled far seeking a new king, which leads us to our next word, which is fear. So the story makes its way around to Herod, and Herod is troubled, it says. He's agitated. He's upset. And when Herod ain't happy... Jerusalem's not happy because he was a tyrant but he wasn't always a tyrant he actually used to be a very popular king politically speaking he was a military hero he had he had a, a he was well known for this poverty relief program he did massive building projects in fact it was he who secured the funding and made sure it happened that massive beautiful temple that our lord himself walked in and taught him Herod built that thing He was well-liked until he got a bit older, and then apparently he started getting a bit crazy. He started seeing conspiracies everywhere. He started seeing coup attempts all over the place, and he became a brutal tyrant in his insecurity. In fact, just to show people he meant business, he killed one of his wives and several of his sons, just to make sure you know, this is my kingdom, not y'all's. So these magi run around Jerusalem, and they trouble him. Now, Get the image of three dudes on camels out of your head, okay? We don't know how many there were. They brought three gifts. It would be very rare for them to travel solo like this. So they would have had had an entourage of security, an entourage of servants. There's a lot of people here. This is a big deal. And Herod hears about it. He hears about their question. And Herod thinks, wait, isn't being king my job? So he calls together his version of magi, his version of wise men, advisors. He calls the scribes and the chief priests. It's not exactly the same, but sort of think about it like he goes to the local r- religious college and he grabs the liberal professors. He goes to the, to the hardcore conservative churches and he grabs those pastors and say, okay, if I get these two rivals together and they come up with the same answer, I know I can trust it. So he brings these two rivals together and says, what's the deal? Why are they running around asking for a king? And what is the big deal? Why is Herod troubled? Well, because when Jesus is proclaimed as king, it means Herod's not, right? Just like when Jesus is proclaimed king, or the word Lord, which is a political term, not a spiritual term. We say it in church all the time, Lord in the New Testament is a political term more than it is spiritual. It means king. It means ruler. When Jesus is proclaimed king, it means we're not in charge either. Jesus is a threat to everybody's rule. You know you can claim to worship the resurrected Lord, right? That you can sing hymns, you can enjoy all this stuff, but you can reject him as king in your life. You've seen it. So you cannot have Jesus as your savior without also having him as your king, as your Lord. But we often try to because Jesus as king disrupts. He agitates most people. Jesus as king won't be compartmentalized to the religious part of our life. He keeps leaking over into the other parts because he's king over all. I want to do a thought exercise with you. This is class participation time. How many people have heard somebody on TV use the phrase freedom of worship? Okay, yeah. You didn't used to hear that very much. It was actually popularized by a recently previous president, and instead of, before that, we used to hear freedom of religion, and there's a very significant reason why that shift has taken place, because you may do worship with other people, but fundamentally it is a private act that you as an individual partake in. uh, religion on the other hand recognizes it's more than an activity it's an ideology it's a lifestyle you could sing it's an identity so it has reaches beyond the individual it has public effects and so whenever you hear a politician say freedom of worship make no mistake what they are saying is we want to push those traditional things out of the public square and keep those private and compartmentalized See, in real Christianity, he won't do that because Jesus leaks out of our compartmentalization. He won't stay in that part. He affects your whole life. He's king or he's not your savior. It's just that simple. So Herod is experiencing that tension right now, and he doesn't like it, so he's gonna fix it. So he finds out the timing from the Magi. He sends them on their way, but he has a plan. Because he fears the child. Before we get to his plan, let's go back a couple verses to see our next word. Our next word is apathy. Look with me, if if you will, at verses 5 and 6 there on on page 10. It says this, They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod's religious advi- advisors, you get this? They, they know the answer right away. I mean, the text reads real fast. It almost reads like a, duh, Herod, Bible fail. Everybody knows. Micah 5.2 says it's Bethlehem. And, and don't miss the irony here. It's really intense if you, if you read it slowly and carefully. The magi, these pagans, show up and say, we know your king has been born. We just don't know where. And these religious scholars say, we know where the king has been born. We just don't care. There's no, there's nothing about them packing their bags and heading to Bethlehem. Micah's prophecy means no more to them than solving the daily Sudoku in the Jerusalem Post that they did that morning. You see, these guys help us remember, you can know the Bible and miss Jesus. You can know his stats, you can know his win-loss record, his miracle percentage, but not know him You know, we noted a few minutes ago having Jesus as Savior but not as King. Here we see the other possibility that we can fall into, having Jesus as Lord but not Savior. That sounds a little weird, so let me help you understand that. I want you to think of the Puritans. Okay, now what you're probably thinking of right now is probably dead wrong. Most likely you're probably thinking about Nathaniel Hawthorne, Scarlet Letter. He was the Michael Moore of his day. That book was purposely written as an anti-Puritan tract, so forget all that, okay, The Puritans were actually very kind-hearted, sensitive people. You can read their diaries because they were like journal people like crazy. And they spent so much time wondering if they had Jesus as Savior as much as they had him as Lord. They were scared to death that they loved the church, they loved hymns, they loved the people, they loved the culture of Christianity, but they did not actually know Jesus I remember remember in seminary one time reading through this diary of this girl. I think she was about 17 years old and she spends like two or three pages and I'm not making this up, agonizing in her heart that she cannot stop coveting her friend's brooch. And we want to chuckle because that sounds funny to us, right? Because we don't care, right? And they did. How can I be born again if this temptation, this covetous heart will not grow away? I pray, I pray, and yet I'm not growing as a disciple because this covetousness just comes back and I want this brooch so bad. You know, in Matthew 7, Jesus says that even devoted people, people who have done things in his name, people who think that they know him, Actually, he has no idea who they are. He doesn't know them. And the Puritans took that warning seriously because you can have Jesus as Lord but not as Savior. And you sort of see that here in Herod's court. These experts in the Bible, these people who knew all about the prophecies, who saw the Magi and their entourage, they heard about the star, everything they had devoted their lives to was coming to fruition before their very eyes, and they don't care. Their apathy is damning. See, the grace of God coming in the Messiah was a principle to them. It was a point of knowledge. It was was a theory. It was a piece of theological interest that made everything click together. They weren't looking for a person. And so when he came, they didn't care. Several years ago, the only way to say this honestly is that the Holy Spirit just knocked me upside the head with this truth. I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson teach Uh, on on a series on how much the gospel is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And he quotes the 16th century theologian named John Calvin. And Calvin said something along the lines of this. He said, Jesus comes wrapped in the garments of the gospel. Isn't that a great turn of phrase? I really like that. Jesus comes wrapped in the garments of the gospel. And then Sinclair floored every single one of us by asking this question. He said, I wonder how many of us are more enamored with the garments than we are with the person wrapped in them. In other words, do we take comfort in a robust theological system? So our devotional pursuits and our Bible studies end up looking more like us solving ever more intricate Sudoku puzzles that give us such fulfillment. Or are we actually communing with an actual person in our devotions and Bible studies? I had to repent. I'll admit, I did. I actually went to my sermon file, because this was not that long, about six years ago, so I had plenty. In my, in my first eight years of ministry, I had to preach Sunday morning and Sunday evening, so I had a lot of sermons. I went Control-F, and I typed in the word Christ, my main sermon file. So we're talking 15, 16 years of work at this point. 15 or more, whatever. And the results for the word Christ in the thousands. Okay? Control F, J E S U S. Because, you know, that's his name. That's the name of a person. Christ is the title of a theological thing, it's not his last name. Right? So I talked about the theological stuff like thousands of times. Okay, I pass. Person of Jesus, 15, 16 years worth of sermons. Enter. It was less than 10. Now, not, don't over-read into that, but for me, I had clearly been emphasizing the theological role of Jesus as the Christ, and it was a little lacking on emphasizing the fact that this theological principle was actually a person. See, these religious leaders demonstrate you can know the Bible and still miss Jesus. See, from this perspective... Matthew 7, 23. Look, look, at, look with me at it. it. says this. It stings a little bit more from that perspective, right? And then Jesus talking says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you know the context of this verse, right before that, these are people who said, Lord, we did great stuff in your name. We cast out demons. We did miracles. We, we worshiped you. We called, you on, we called on your name. And Jesus is like, I don't know you. I never knew See, we Christians tend to dismiss the seriousness of that warning, don't we? That's one of those passages we read real fast and don't think about. But Jesus says some pretty involved, outwardly sanctified, even gifted church people will hear from their Lord. I wasn't your Lord. I never knew you. I was never your Savior. But for those who do know him. For those who long for God's shepherd, even the person of the Lord Jesus, this next word is for you. We get to joy. So the Magi head out of Jerusalem and let's land together in verse 10. Look at me at verse 10. It says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You know, the way this reads, if you read through the text slowly, this kind of indicates maybe a re-understanding of their hope in verses 1 and 2. The image I've always had, and I bet I'm not alone, is that they're out in the east doing their wise man thing, you know, math or something, I don't know, and they see the star, right? And all of a sudden, they understand somehow what it is, and so they follow this physical phenomenon, and it leads them to Jerusalem. But notice, verse 2 says they saw it when it rose, but we don't get the verb follow until here in verse 10, or in verse 9. They don't follow it until just now, so, what's going on, I, I believe, is that when they were back home, they saw this phenomenon, and it caused them to remember part, that Old Testament stuff that was part of their curriculum now, and they knew that thing means the Jewish king is coming. Let's go. So, they followed the Old Testament to Jerusalem, they saw the sign. They believed it, and in hope, they headed west to the capital of the Hebrews, assuming they'd find a celebration. Thus, their confused question in verse 2. Now, here it is reappearing after so long, probably about two years. You know, there's, in the very next story, we know Herod kills all the infants in Bethlehem two years and under. And he, it says he ascertained from them the timing, so it seems it might be two years And they see this star and all of a sudden they are overjoyed that they haven't traveled in vain. Their hope has been fulfilled. There's a sign they're on the right track. In fact, it says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Whenever the biblical writers are repetitively redundant, many times, all over again, in a row, (laughs) squared, they're trying to emphasize something to you. So they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot of joy. You ever been hoping for something beyond hope? You ever really needed God to come through? And you hoped and you prayed. You did your best to keep fear at bay, but you're still in limbo. Kind of like your life is kind of holding its breath, just waiting. And suddenly the answer comes through, and it's great. What's going on in your heart? Joy. It may not be this outgoing effervescence. That's more of a personality trait. It could be a very inward, just glowing peace of finally breathing again after holding your breath. Uh, Oh, thank God. It's a deep-seated heart gratitude of thankfulness, just happy to be alive on this earth. That's joy. And it's one of the big parts of Advent. Advent. That's why we called this series Burning Joy because joy comes from Christ coming to us and joy comes from the heart and it empowers our Christian life. Oh, wanting to be godly, wanting to grow in your faith. You realize it's not a matter of disciplining your will. New Year's resolution season is coming up but I would encourage you not to do that. We try to find ways to hack our will into godliness but you know what the Bible tells us? The Bible says the key to godliness is letting gospel joy capture your heart. Because God's joy in your heart yields holiness in your life. How? Because joy will guide your emotions into wanting to be holy. And your emotions will then guide your will into actually doing the holy in the moment. Because you realize, Christian, every battle for temptation, every single one comes down to the battle of desire we've been set free from sin in christ and so we do what we want to do in the moment and with joy in your heart it'll change your want tos advent is all about getting joy into god's people because when joy is in your heart we jump right to the next word worship so these rejoicing magi they show up in bethlehem notice at a house not a manger Again, based upon their journey and and Herod's later response, Jesus is probably a toddler at this point. They see him, they believe him to be a king, and so they bow down before him and worship, which is what every toddler expects, but Jesus actually deserves, right? (laughs) And notice, man, they saw no miracles, they heard no teaching, just in hope they found joy, and in their joy they worshiped. And then they gave of themselves gold and frankincense and myrrh. People always try to find symbolism here. There's really nothing in the text about that. There are three expensive things that are kind of native to the east where they came from. They bring honor to Jesus as king. But I do love how practical the Bible is. If you're familiar with the story of them taking Jesus to the temple when he was born to dedicate him, remember what they had to offer two little turtle doves? That's the offerings for the people who are poor. So in like three verses, the Holy Spirit is going to come in a dream and say, you need to move to Egypt like now to save Jesus' life. That's going to be really hard if they don't have resources. All of a sudden, now they have some gold, some frankincense, and some myrrh that they can liquidate to finance such an emergency trip. But here's what's really important about this. The Magi believed in Jesus when they saw him. So they worshiped him. We have so much more than they have. Do we worship and serve Jesus? This Christmas, is he the Savior and King of the world? The one who brings joy to all kinds of people, like Magi from the Dark East and even you. You know, as we wrap this up, this incident with the Magi tells us a lot about God, actually. <laughs> These guys were doing their nightly stargazing, whatever it is they do. They see this new star appear. They remember the Hebrew scriptures, and they realize it's time for the king of the Jews. They did not sit back and wait for him to come to them. They went to the child because he could not come to them. The magi make this incredible journey to encounter Jesus, and so too you realize that God comes to us when we could not come to him eternity enters time to see us Jesus makes an incredible journey to us because we could not come to him see and you can know the joy behind Micah's prophecy of Bethlehem because there's an even more ancient prophecy goes all the way back to a garden when everything fell apart and God said I will send a champion to undo all this evil he'll be wounded in the process but he'll prevail Jesus comes as that promised king and champion. He dies for the sin of his people to be raised to new life in joy. It's what we're going to celebrate in a few moments in this table. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus can bring you joy. Let these five little words be a challenge to you this Advent season. Don't live in fear. Don't waste your life in apathy. But in hope, find the joy of being a worshiper of Jesus. This Advent season, look to Jesus yet again. Or perhaps for the first time. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray together. And gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And Lord, we ask that as we've looked at this familiar story, that you would give us joy inexpressible and full of glory at the fact that Jesus Christ has come, that he lived for us, that he died for us, and he was raised for our joy. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.